No mai whakarongomai, and welcome to The Policy Fix, a podcast by the Policy Observatory AUT. Ko Kerry Mills tēnei, and today I'm talking with Dr Elizabeth Eppel, Senior Associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies, Victoria University of Wellington, on her work on water governance in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Tēnā koe, Elizabeth. Tēnā koe, Kerry. Could you start by explaining what water governance means? Well, it's the processes through which government and people arrive at a way of us managing water resources. And of course, sitting behind that is all those contentious things that people are talking about now, like, does anybody own water? But let's just say we've got water and the processes of using fresh water as a resource needs some sort of process wrapped around it to make that work. So is it the decision-making process that leads into the management process? It is a decision making and, and it's also it's got some sort of rules based process around it. So as we've set it up in New Zealand, the Resource Management Act is the major piece of legislation that determines how we manage fresh water. Unfortunately, when the Resource Management Act was set up in ninety one, it made provision for government to make policy statements. But for the next 20 years, there was not any policy statements. So actually all our regional councils just went away and did their own thing and continued to really allocate permission to use fresh water on the basis of first come, first served, mostly, with each of them setting their own rules around what use was appropriate or not. So you've mentioned the Resource Management Act and the regional councils. What are the other key players in in water governance in New Zealand? Well, there's several national levels of government that are interested. The Ministry of Health plays a role in setting standards for fresh water that's going to be used for drinking purposes. The Ministry for the Environment is the major government agency that has a role as the, I suppose, the sponsor of the Resource Management Act. But we've also got big industries in New Zealand that are big users of fresh water, such as our primary industries. And in recent years, our Ministry of Primary Industries has been quite an active player in the rule setting around fresh water use. So our regional councils are charged with giving effect to the Resource Management Act for their regions. Interestingly, Our district councils, and remember in a couple of areas we've only got one council that does both these roles, like in Auckland, our district councils are big users of water. They're also the ones who look after the stormwater and the the wastewater and the, the drinking water, and therefore they are in a way clients of the Resource Management Act as well, and subject to the regional council in some of the things they do. You mentioned before that the RMA sets these policy statements, but they're not actually made or made for a very long time. Well, the first one came out 20 years after the Act. And in that policy statement, national level of government began to set some bottom lines about what the regional councils needed to do in the area of fresh water. By then, there was a lot of contestation that fresh water just wasn't for using on the basis of... Uh, first in, first served, there began to be debates about whether or not we should be charging for fresh water. And I think that's a a good point at which to 
introduce the Land and Water Forum because by the time we got to 2011-12, this sort of hiatus in terms of guidance to the regional councils really had come to a head because we'd gone into a period of economic intensification of dairying. A lot of water around the country was beginning to decline in quality and people were worried that the processes that the regional councils were following were not keeping up with what needed to be done. And you had a number of areas where people were wanting to dam or put in big irrigation schemes and people's feeling that maybe some of these things weren't the right things to be doing and they were only going to lead to more water degradation. So the Land and Water Forum was a process that came about both by design and by accident. I believe Guy Salmon is somewhere at the back of it. He, at a big environmental meeting, managed to convince a few important players that a more collaborative process, so instead of you ending up with a people in corners coming from fixed positions, the view that Guy had was that you were only going to solve this by some sort of collaborative process. And the Land and Water Forum is what eventuated from that. And effectively, the ministers of the day were convinced that if they were to let this process run its course, that they would be given advice that would be the best that they could get for balancing all the interests in freshwater use. So that is both the people who'd want it just kept pristine as it is, because they just want to enjoy the vibe of the fresh water. It's all about um, the vibe. The, the people who want to swim and fish in it and uh, go canoeing in fast water and things like that, plus the people who want to earn their livelihood through dairying or some agriculture or some other land-based activity. And so the idea that perhaps there had to be some way in which those different interests and those different valuings of water had to be able to be debated. And so the forum undertook to give the ministers advice on what the way forward on the governance of freshwater might be. And that group met from about 2010 through till about, really until the, the government changed and the Labour government came in. I believe it is it started meeting again, but I haven't caught up with just exactly what their agenda is currently. But in the time they operated, they gave the government four reports and part of the deal had to be that various lobbyists coming from different perspectives couldn't go round the back door and get in the minister's ear and get the minister to do what they wanted. They had to actually debate it in this forum and get the balance between the different perspectives. And in that respect, the forum was a very interesting experiment, if you like, in what's called collaborative governance. And do you think it was a successful experiment? Well, I think it was, and it was very successfully chaired and and managed for about four years. And the main reason it began to fall apart is because the fundamental rules of collaborative governance began to be breached. Because if government wants to draw on the views of effectively a citizen group that is trying to balance um, the, all those different demands on fresh water, 
they need to be willing to go along with what that group's deliberation has led them to. And it became increasingly clear by the time the Land and Water Forum got to their fourth report that the government was only going to cherry-pick the various recommendations. I suppose the Land and Water Forum also had got to some of the harder issues where the differences between some of the big lobby players, effectively Fish and Game and Forest and Bird and so on, versus Fonterra and Federag Farmers, you know, the differences there are quite strong and pleasing both those groups is never going to be easy. And so it became increasingly hard because I think some of the early things they did was pick off some of the low-hanging fruit, like put out some bottom lines in these policy statements. So the government did put out policy statements and it put out some bottom lines, but their initial ones were way, way, way too permissive in terms of what they demanded, in terms of clarity and oxygen and various other things in the water. So this kind of collaborative form seems like a really great way to get different interests to work out, you know, where perhaps they might surprisingly agree. So it stops the, I mean, in policy talk, we talk about the tight triangle, clearly in areas where there are two powerful interests and a decision maker, then you you get a tight triangle where, you know, one interest or the other is always lobbying the decision maker to do what they want. And I think that is how this water area had been for a long time. Whereas what the Land and Water Forum did do was get into the discussion a lot more um, consideration of some of the more diverse values about fresh water. So presumably these are selected representatives. Well, they are. They're self-selected. They're self-selected. And so it's it's hardly democracy in the sense of deliberative democracy where you say everybody's welcome. But it was the big players initially, the Fish and Game and Forest and Bird and those groups, plus Fonterra, plus Federated Farmers, but then all the others joined. So they ended up with about 57 bodies that had some interest in fresh water um, who participated in the process. And so I guess each of those bodies would be channeling you know what their own membership thought but that that's one of the difficult things about that sort of process because you can't continue to only work for what your own organization wants you've got to recognize that the other organizations are on a slightly different page and you you compromise on some things and some people think that's that's the downside of it is that that you do have to compromise somewhere along the line there's an interesting democratic question in there where if the rule is that this will only work properly if the government basically implements exactly what they come up with, but then you lose the democratic part of it. So how do you get around that quandary? Yeah. The, the idea behind all of this is, is based on research that was done by the Nobel Prize winning economist Eleanor Ostrom. And so it's her work on managing common pool resources that people are drawing on. And effectively, Ostrom's idea is that you are managing something quite complex where um, there are all these different decision makers and that various people will try and get 
the best they can out of it but you've actually got different people trying so they're trying to avoid what Garrett Hardin called the tragedy of the commons where everybody simply takes what they want and doesn't care what happens because everyone else is doing it too um, so can you come to a set of rules that people will abide by and of course the other thing Ostrom says though it will only work if everybody is playing by the rules and if people can avoid the rules in some way by going outside of what has been arrived at then yes you it's not going to work very well so it's 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 not a form of participation that says everyone will get what exactly what they want um, it's it's a process that will lead to something that everybody says they can live with um, and I think that still probably has some issues of short-termism as long as you've got the lobbyists there who are thinking about the fact that we're going to want to be able to do whitewater rafting or we're going to want to go into a pristine mountain river in a hundred years time and have it still there as long as those people are participating one of the concerns is that a lot of those groups are not particularly well resourced and it's the big groups that have got particularly deep pockets who can afford to continue to litigate about a, a rule in the environment court. And another part of the puzzle here, of course, is Māori role in the government. Well, that's the problem that they they got to and did not get very far on the Land and Water Forum, which was that there had to be some way of dealing with ownership if you wanted to do something about people taking fresh water and selling it for commercial gain then whose fresh water were they taking and who got the proceeds so we're still hearing that play out around bottled water and the issue of ownership of fresh water is still incredibly fraught in that Māori have established that under the treaty they believe they have some rights in the nature of ownership, we'll call them that. That's and what the tribunal called them, wasn't it? So there's got to be a way found through that. If you want to do any charging, if you want to do any, some of the things that might send the right signals for how we manage fresh water. Because if at the moment you can take a whole pile of really pristine water in an aquifer that's been filtered down through the soil and is perfectly pure, and you can just spray it all over a paddock, and what's happening after you've sprayed it all over a paddock and it's contaminated with all the things that come off the paddock, like the leftover fertiliser and the excrement from the animals, then it begins to filter back down. So the next lot of water that's replacing in the aquifer is not going to be nearly so clean. So we're not leaving behind a pristine aquifer. We're going to eventually have a very contaminated aquifer. Mm. So we've got to find some signals that make people make choices for the long term and pricing may be one of the things. You've described a very complex problem here. Do you have any direction on how we can attempt to begin to fix it? The scientists are probably being too little listened to about what we know about the ability of natural systems to refresh themselves and people just believe oh it'll just keep on going well no maybe it won't and we we won't be able to reverse it 
secondly, people do have to live. People rely on the fact that the water is available for use for us to earn livelihoods. Um, so it sort of needs everybody to mm. understand how that entire process is working and where we've got quick wins that we can do and where actually there's going to have to be some long-term adjustments. And in terms of governance, do you see any quick fixes on how we could govern our water better? I don't really. Mm. I mean, I do think the positive thing is these processes at the local level that have brought together different interests, and Māori interests particularly, are quite strongly involved in all of these examples that are going on around the country. I was talking to someone only the other day about Lake Taupo um, and you know how, how difficult it is to, to keep that from becoming a sewer. And I think it's only when you've got all the players in the room that you can begin to get to, so what are we going to do about this? And the one-size-fits-all doesn't seem to work. You know, if you just sit in Wellington and design it on a piece of paper and go and lay it over, for some reason, it, there's usually reasons why it won't work on the ground. So the, the benefit of the locally-driven collaborative processes is there's much more awareness of what is and therefore much more awareness of what could be. And so you get a more innovation. And internationally, there's a lot of work that says it's in those processes that we get innovative breakthroughs. So I think we've got to keep trying at that. Mm. We have unfortunately run out of time. Excellent. Tēnākui, Elizabeth. For more podcasts and how to subscribe, visit www.thepolicyobservatory.aut.ac.nz. Nō reira, i te whānau ko whakarongo mai nei, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa.